0: Have you ever had something that always worked, was always reliable, and then suddenly it broke? You had to fix it. You had to replace it. Uh, For those of us in the room who are the kind of people who have smartphones because you can no longer buy flip phones... Uh, For those of us who have high-speed internet, because you can no longer have Juno and uh, dial-up internet, you know how this goes. And sometimes that, that dishwasher, that hot water heater, that old, reliable car suddenly breaks down and you're forced to change, not because you want to, but because you have to. Well, that was what happened about 600 years ago in Europe. For hundreds of years, goods had been shipped from Europe across asia to the far east places like india and china and that system worked because this section of the world was known as the ottoman empire it was stable and it was easy to ship things however when that empire began to break down it was no longer easy it was no longer fast and it certainly was no longer cheap So they had to change. And so this guy, King John II of Portugal, began to have a vision that things could be shipped not over land, but across sea. And so he invested an ungodly amount of money to try to find a new pathway from Europe to Asia around Africa. Which to us is like no big deal, because we know there's a way around. But back then, no one had made it that way. Until this guy. Bartolomeu Dias. In 1488, he left Portugal, sailed all the way around Africa, and got to this point right here, the southern tip of Africa. He barely made it around the tip of of Africa before the storms became too great and he turned back. And it was on his way back to Europe that he saw this southern point In the midst of a storm, he was able to go ashore to plant a flag, and because he discovered it, he got to name it, and he called it, in English, the Cape of Tempests, also known as the Cape of Storms. Luckily, he survived that storm, and he made it back to Portugal to King John, who'd paid for this trip. And he shared with him, King John, I've discovered a way to make it to India across the sea, but I have to go around the Cape of Tempests. And King John said, you may have named it the the Cape of Tempests, but since I paid for this trip, I'm going to rename it. And he named it what you know it as today, the Cape of Good Hope. See, for Dias, it was the Cape of Storms because he'd gone through the storms. But for John, who for decades had been trying to make a way there, he saw it as the Cape of Good Hope because he saw the hope this represented. Now, some of you have had a very similar experience to Dios and John. You've not been out exploring the seas, but you've been working your way through 1 Peter. And for some of you, you call this book the book of suffering. You're like, Scott, when is this series ever going to end? I am tired of coming on Sundays and hearing about suffering. For others of you, you know this book not based upon its suffering, but based upon its hope. Maybe you're in the middle of suffering, and this book has offered you hope as you've gone through it. And so in the same way that the Cape of Good Hope is also the Cape of Storms, it's a treacherous place, I want to tell you that the book of 1 Peter is a book about suffering, but it's a book that's also about hope in the middle of suffering. And so I would say it's not or, it's and. So we're continuing today this and series about our living hope in the midst of a hostile world. And we're going to begin chapter four of 1 Peter today. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there. If you've not been here for a while, haven't been in the scriptures ever, First Peter is near the back of the Bible. It's right before 2 Peter and right after 3 John. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. And if you're in Hebrews, you haven't gone far enough. And we're going to dig into the first 11 verses of chapter 4 today. And if you're taking notes or you have your hand out, here's the big idea that we're going to unpack this morning. Every adversity is also an opportunity when God's grace is involved. It doesn't mean that the adversity goes away. It's also an opportunity when God's grace is involved. And so I'm not here today to minimize the adversity that you're in. I'm not here to say that it's not adversity. I'm just here to talk about Paul's words that it may also be an opportunity. And so today what I want to do is I want to share with you four ways we can respond to the grace of God in the midst of adversity. And we're going to look at these piece by piece as we go through this this book. So the first way we can respond to the grace of God is we can embrace the attitude of Jesus. First and foremost, Peter's going to tell us how we can embrace the attitude of Jesus. If you have your Bible, follow along with me. In verse 1, this is what Peter says. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding... Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Now, whenever we see the word therefore in Scripture, you have to know that it's referring back to something that happened earlier. And I've told you this every week. This is a letter. They'd be reading it all in one sitting. They wouldn't be reading it piece by piece. So, so when Peter says, therefore, what is he referring to? He's referring to what we covered last week. And if you weren't here, this is what Peter said in the previous section. He said, for Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. He summarized the gospel in that sentence there in verse 18, that Christ suffered for sins once and for all, that he died once and for all for everyone's sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous one. We're all the unrighteous ones. And what he did through that is he made it possible that he might bring us back to God and reconcile us to him. So we're not here today to participate in some work that makes us worthy of God's love. We're not here today to celebrate that we can earn God's love or that somehow God grades on a curve where hopefully He'll elevate our good works enough where we're okay. No, we're only reconciled to God because Christ died for us. That's what our hope is. And so when Peter says, therefore, he's referring to this. He's saying, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves. Now, now we think about arming ourselves as Arizonans. We're a state that loves our guns. There are more guns in our county than there are people. The only thing we love more than our, guns, our, our dogs and our cats is our guns. He's not saying open carry, because he's not in Arizona. He's saying arm yourself like a Roman would, because he's living in first century Rome. And the words, arm yourself, are the same words that would be spoken to a soldier as he was preparing to go to war. He's saying, put on your armor, grab your shield, grab your sword. Now now here, he's not saying that your weapons are swords and shields. He says, arm yourself with the same understanding. Arm yourself with the understanding and the attitude that Jesus had about his own suffering. What he's saying, in essence, is that your attitude is the weapon that you bring to the suffering that you are in. And he's saying, arm yourself with the attitude of Jesus. Have the same attitude that Jesus has. Now, I know some of you are like, Scott, that is impossible. I cannot... Think about my suffering the way Jesus thought about his. And I'm not here to argue with you today on that point. In your flesh, you're right. But here's the thing I know about Scripture. Everything God calls us to do, God also equips us to do. So God would not be saying through Peter to arm yourself with the attitude of Jesus if it was not possible for you to have that attitude, not in and of yourself in your flesh, but through His grace and through His Spirit. In and of yourself, you can't have the same attitude that Jesus had. Only through His grace and through His Spirit can you do it. That's why in John 16, Jesus says, it's better that I go to heaven and send the Holy Spirit to you than if I stay here. Now, I don't know about you, but if given the choice, I'd probably choose Jesus in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit in me. But what Jesus said is the reason I'm giving you the Spirit is that with the Spirit, you will be able to do even greater things than I did. So if you're saying, Scott, I can't have the attitude of Jesus, you're right, in your flesh you can't. But in God's Spirit, you can. And attitude, friends, is everything. As I was thinking about attitude this week, I was reminded of a quote I first heard as a teen from Chuck Swindoll about attitude. It's a little bit longer, but I want you to listen to it today. Swindoll said this. He said, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do it's more important than appearance giftedness or skill it will make a make or break a company a church a home the remarkable things Swindoll says and he's a, he's a pastor he's a believer we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day we cannot change the inevitable the only thing we can do is play on the one string we have and that is our attitude He said, I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. And according to Peter, we can arm ourselves for suffering and adversity by choosing to have the attitude of Jesus and view our suffering the way that Jesus did. Now, I know this is hard. I know this is crazy. I know this is a stretch. But let me just tell you, I've tried the opposite way. I have a PhD in having a bad attitude about suffering. And some of you do as well. You are in the same class with me. And what did that get you? Nowhere. It didn't make suffering any better, it didn't make it any shorter. And it didn't allow God to use it in a greater way. No, when we have the attitude of Jesus, what it does is it takes the situation we're in and it transforms our perspective on it. And it allows us to begin to see how God is using it for something greater. So the first thing we can do in response to God's grace is we can have the attitude of Jesus. The second thing we can do is we can follow in the footsteps of Noah. We can follow in the footsteps of Noah. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, this is what Peter writes. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry... They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. That's bolded because we're going to come back to it. And they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards they might live in the Spirit according to God's standards. Now, what Peter begins this section talking about is the past of all these believers that he's writing to. He says, we've already spent enough time doing what the Gentiles do. By this point, it was very rare for someone to be born into a family that followed Jesus. Everyone who followed Jesus was a convert, they were a certain age when they put their faith and trust in Jesus. It wasn't the environment they were born into. And what Peter seems to be indicating is that everyone has a before I surrender to Jesus face. For those of you who became a believer, maybe as a teen or an adult, you have memories of your life before you follow Jesus. You have a life that you can remember where you were not walking in the ways of Jesus. You were not living under the authority of Jesus. You weren't thinking about Jesus other than it was your favorite curse word when things got really bad. But some of you are like, Scott, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know a day in my life where Sunday wasn't a day for church. I didn't have a before I surrendered to Jesus phase. And I would say, yes, you did. Because I did. I was a pastor's kid. And though I was birthed in the church, literally, they entered the service on a Sunday morning to announce I was born. I have memories of times before I surrendered to Jesus, where I may have believed in Him as my Lord and Savior, but there were parts of my life that were not His. And He confronted me about attitudes, actions, and patterns that didn't align with Him, that I needed to surrender to Him. And what Peter's saying here is there's a part of your life where you lived as the Gentiles did, not surrender to Jesus, and you've already spent enough of your limited life on that. It's time to turn and walk in a different way, and that's where Noah comes up. So, for those of you who can remember the story of Noah from Genesis chapter 6, Noah was a man who was told by God to build a boat when there had never been any rain. And this was not a short construction project. Some of you have built homes in Prescott and you know how slow it goes. You had a fast project. His project lasted 120 years. If he'd started it in 1902, it would have been finished today. Long time. And everyone around him was living differently. They were living lives that are these words here. Carousing. Caring on unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, lawless idolatry. That's the description of the people around Noah. And yet Noah was walking in faithful obedience, and along the way, people began to give him the side eye. People began to say, why are you doing what you're doing? Not only this building project, but you're not living like us. And that's why when, when Peter says... They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living all of the audience would have got. Oh, he's talking about Noah. Talk about the flood. And so what Peter's saying to us is that we are to live like Noah did, turning our back on that and ign- ignoring the slander that's coming and living as if we're going to stand before God and have to give an account one day. Now, I will tell you, Noah is not God. Noah is not Jesus. Noah was not perfect. He has an after the ark story that I would encourage you not to replicate. But when it comes to his life before the flood, he lived in such faithful obedience that it made it difficult for those around him. And so if you can remember your life before you surrender to Jesus, You know that when you begin to follow Jesus, your new pattern can cause others to have to ask themselves uncomfortable questions. When you shift the way you're living, the people who were a part of your past now are forced to ask themselves maybe some questions they don't want to. And just by you living, not even talking, but living, you may make them uncomfortable. They may even feel judged because you've abandoned one way and adopted a new way. Now, I know of no greater sin in our modern America today than judgment. I mean, the worst thing you can do is tell somebody what they're doing is wrong. The worst thing you can do is judge somebody else. But Peter speaks directly to this. He says, we are all going to have to give an account one day. We are all going to be judged. Verse 5, they will stand... To give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. All of us are going to be judged one day. And here's the question you have to wrestle with. Which is worse? Being slandered by people who are ungodly or being judged by God? Being slandered by people who are not living the way you're living, who don't believe what you believe, who aren't going where you're going, or being judged by God? You're going to be judged either way. So pick which one. And Peter says, live under the preparation for the judgment of God. And then he says something interesting here in verse 6. He says, for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. Now, some of you who've been kind of reading in advance of these messages, you might be thinking, Scott, what does this verse mean? I, I wondered that as I read this week. What he's saying is the gospel was preached, parentheses there, in the past, was is a past tense verb, to those who are dead now in the present. So when these people heard the gospel, they were alive, but now they're dead. Why was the gospel preached to them then? What Peter's saying here in verse 6 is the gospel was preached to them then, and they needed to hear the gospel so they'd be able to endure suffering. And Peter's, in some way, got a sense of where his future is headed. Peter was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified right side up the way Jesus was. The other ten living disciples, nine of them were brutally martyred for their faith, and John was sent to an island to live out the rest of his years in isolation. Some of you could barely survive two or three months in your house during COVID, and you had the internet. John was on an island for years, maybe even decades by himself. The reason they were able to endure the fires or the isolations or the stonings was that they knew the gospel and that they could stand before God confidently because of their faith in Jesus. So we can have the same attitude as Jesus and we can follow in the pattern of Noah in faithful obedience. And third, we can live as if our time is short because it is. We can live as if our time is short because it is. A few years ago, I saw a movie. I think it was called In Time. And it was a movie where everybody didn't have money. They had time. And literally in their arm, there was a chip that would display how many minutes, hours, and seconds they had left to live. It was a terrifying kind of probability for the future. But in some ways, it gave their lives instant urgency. The problem is all of us have a ticking clock. All of us, our life is going to expire. Now, hopefully your life is not going to expire as soon as the milk in your fridge at home. But it's going to. And so Peter says, since our lives are short, we ought to live like that. In verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. And above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. He starts out by saying, Keep your mind clear and sober so you can pray. Peter's not saying don't ever have alcohol because he had alcohol with Jesus. He was there when Jesus turned water into wine. And if you remember John 2, it was the best wine. It was not the two buck chuck that you bring out when everybody else is plastered. I grew up Southern Baptist. I did not hear this story taught this way when I was a child. I had to learn it in seminary and go, man, I was taught differently. But what he's saying is keep your mind clean and sober so you can pray. It's hard to pray when your mind is clouded and foggy. And if you're in adversity today or you've been in adversity before, you know adversity changes how you pray. When everything's going well, you pray one way. And when the wheels are falling off, you pray a totally different way. That's why for some of you, the times that you have felt closest to God were not the best times in your life. They were the hardest times. And and Peter's saying, the end is coming, things are going to get harder, so keep your mind clean and sober so you can pray, because prayer is what's going to carry you through. Your dependence on God is going to carry you through. That's why sometimes I think the worst thing God could do for some of us is give us everything we want. Give us a very simple and easy life. Sometimes it takes that adversity and suffering to draw us back to God. But Peter continues. He says, maintain constant love for one another. If you have the ESV translation, your translation reads, love each other deeply. That word constant in the Christian Standard Bible that I preach from, or the word deeply in the English Standard Version, it's it's a word picture in Greek, and it's the idea or image of a runner straining to win a race. Reaching for that tape at the finish line. That's the kind of love that we are to have for one another. Because, and I know this is going to shock some of you, so I'm glad you're all sitting down. Some people are hard to love. Some people in the church are extra hard to love. I was taught a phrase as a kid growing up about those people, EGR, extra grace required. And so what, what Peter's saying is that as we get closer to the end, we are to love each other deeply and strain in love. There is a feeling component to love. Don't get me wrong. But if it's only a feeling, when things get hard and they become EGR people, you will stop loving them because you don't feel like it and it's too much work. And to be frank, some of us aren't going to get love because we're going to be the people who are the EGR people. There are some days I'm the EGR person. And so he says, love each other deeply, strain in love. And don't just walk away because it doesn't make you happy anymore or it takes work or it's hard. He talks about this love that it covers a, a multitude of sins. Here, Peter's quoting Proverbs. In Proverbs ten twelve, the writer of Proverbs says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. Now, let me be really clear with what the word covers means. It doesn't mean hides. It doesn't mean ignores. It doesn't mean like when you have somebody coming over to your house and you put all of the dirty clothes in the closet and close the door. It isn't that kind of cover. What he's saying here is that love sees those offenses, love faces those offenses, and love forgives those offenses. And friends, I know of no word that evokes more strong response in my 15 to 20 years of preaching than forgiveness. When I bring up forgiveness, it's like people who are listening to me turn into monkeys and start throwing tomatoes at me. Because forgiveness is possibly the hardest thing we will ever do. And yet the kind of love that Peter's talking about here, it sees those offenses, it faces those offenses, and it forgives those offenses. Now I don't have time to do a whole teaching today on forgiveness, but here's what I will say, just one thing. Forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness does not equal trust. When I teach forgiveness, here's how I teach it. Forgiveness involves me and God. God. Reconciliation involves we. It's both people. And trust, it takes time. It's a big difference between forgiveness and trust. You can decide that you're going to forgive someone, but you can't decide whether somebody's worthy of trust again. And for those of you control freaks, that's the hardest part of all. You can be in control of forgiveness, but you're not in control of reconciliation and trust. And what Peter's saying is the kind of love that I'm calling you to, it certainly involves forgiveness. The final thing he talks about here is he says that that as, as people, they are to show hospitality to one another. In the first chapter of this book, he said, you, my audience, not us, but his original audience, are strangers and exiles. They were living in a land that was not their own. And when you're living in a place that's not your own, you're dependent on the hospitality of others to help you. And so he's saying, now others are going to come and they're going to be dependent on your hospitality the same way you were dependent on somebody else's hospitality to survive. One of the hardest things that I have found for some of us in this Western American 21st century world is the principle we were taught as toddlers. Sharing. What's the first word you hear from a toddler? Mine. Some of us still have that in us. But this is my house. This is my car. This is my money. This is my time. Really? Really? Who gave you the life to earn that money, to buy that house, to buy that car? Who gave you more time? And who's in charge of that money? Hospitality requires a surrendered heart and open hands. And some of us, it is the hardest gift for us to express, which is a great segue into the final thing that Peter says. We can respond to the grace of God by receiving and sharing the grace of God. He ends this section talking about what we do with the grace of God. Verse 10, here's what Peter says. Just as each one has received a gift Use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Verse 11, he says, If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. In my Bible, the header, which by the way is not inspired, Peter didn't label his sections. That was added by Bible translators hundreds of years later. In my Bible, the header for this section we've talked about today is stewards of God's grace. It's the bold right above chapter 4. The word steward is not a word we often use, but it's a word that means someone who manages something precious and valuable that the person received but is owned by another. So a steward has something in their hands, in their possession. It's really important, but they didn't get it themselves and they didn't own it themselves. Someone gave it to them. And what Peter is saying is that is God's grace. It's precious and valuable. It's not yours like you gave it to yourself. You received it from God and you are to be a steward of it. This is why I just want to encourage you. The word stewardship is far bigger than money. Often in the church, when we hear stewardship, we think money. But stewardship is much bigger than that. It is your time. It is your talents and gifts. It is your money. It's your relationships. It's everything you have that ultimately God is in charge of. And he says in this text, Peter, that even God's gifts are an expression of his grace that God gives us gifts but even that is is a grace and some of you have learned along the way what your gift is maybe you've got a sense of what your spiritual gift is and if you know that I just want to encourage you that gift you have it isn't about you and your gift isn't for you that's why there's no place for pride when it comes to spiritual gifts the gift that you have isn't about you it's about God after all, God's only gave it to you. Peter ends the section saying this is all for the glory of God. He also says the gift isn't, isn't for you to use on yourself. The gift that you have is to serve others. And this is where I was preparing this message this week, and I was just reminded that this gift that I have, that I'm using right now with you, is not about me. I, I, I'm so grateful that we are part of a church, our team, our staff, that cares for us and loves us. I've served in churches where that wasn't the case, that didn't have a moment like we just had, that didn't pay our staff well, that didn't provide benefits, that that didn't do any sort of appreciation. Now, there's a reason why this is a a huge turnover career, because it can be brutal on your soul, and when you're not appreciated, it makes it even harder. So I I appreciate the biblical honor, but we have to be careful that we don't ever shift from honor to praise. Because though my feet are made of flesh and bone, my feet are spiritually made of clay. Do not put any of us on a pedestal. The same amount of blood that Jesus bled for your sins, He bled for mine, He bled for ours. We are not better, we are not more holy. And as I use this gift, it's not for me, it's for you. And friends, as stewards of grace, whatever our gifts are, we fail when we only receive God's grace or we only share God's grace. Some of you are really good at receiving God's grace for yourself. You're just really bad at sharing. There's people in your life where you're like, you get grace, you get grace, you get grace. You, not so much. (laughs) You don't deserve it. Well, neither do you. So we fail when we only receive God's grace and we hoard it for ourselves. Others of you, you are really good at sharing God's grace. But when you screw up, you can't receive it yourself because you don't think you're worthy of it. You share God's grace, but you live in shame personally. And friends, we fail when we only do one or the other. God did not intend for us to be cul de sacs when it came to grace, He intended for us to be conduits. We receive it, and then we share it. And that's why whenever we hit adversity, We also have opportunities because God's grace is involved. Let me give you two next steps today as you put this passage into practice. The first next step is this. I want to invite you to name the opportunity within the adversity that you're facing today. What struggle, difficulty, hostility, suffering are you in? And what might the opportunity be that God's birthing from it? Now, you might say, Scott, that's going to take me some time. I know. Might be the end of today, the end of this week, the end of this series, the end of this year. You might need help because sometimes we're so close to it, we can't see it for ourselves. But I would just encourage you, there is some opportunity within the adversity you're facing today. It's not one It's both. It's adversity and opportunity. So, name that opportunity. And then, two, I want to encourage you to evaluate your stewardship of grace. And I've given you four questions if you have your hand out today. Here's the first one How are you receiving God's grace? In what area of your life are you receiving God's grace? Two, how are you sharing God's grace with someone else? Three, is there an area where you're not receiving God's grace yourself? Where you're like, okay, I'll take God's grace here, here, and here, but not right here. My past is too broken. My sin is too great. My failure is too large. And then is there an area where you're withholding God's grace from others? Is there somebody that you don't feel is worthy of it, and you're withholding it? The way that our adversities become opportunities is not our strength and not our goodness. It's receiving and sharing the grace that God's given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace that in the midst of our adversities and our challenges and our difficulties, morning by morning and day by day, you give us new mercy and new grace. Not for us to hoard and spend on ourselves, not for us to depend on, but for us to lean into you and your provision and for us to share. For those who are here right now or watching online or who will watch later, who are in the midst of adversity and struggle, I pray that they might find you at work. I pray they might discover the gift of your grace. And I pray that you might open up opportunities to accomplish things, miracles, that would not be possible in success. I pray that as we use the grace and the gifts that you've given us, we wouldn't spend it on ourselves. We wouldn't merely give it away, but that we would receive your grace, allow it to transform us, and then become your instruments in this world. We thank you that you are at work in our world the same way that you were with Noah and with Peter. And we pray that you would do great and glorious things even through our difficulties.